Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of His benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. For He Himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. As for man... His days are like grass, as a flower of the field. So He flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him, and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, And His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Father, we bless You this morning. We bless Your name. We pray blessing and honor and glory to You, Lord. We offer up praise from our hearts to You. We recognize You as Father and Great King, as Ruler over all. And we pray, Lord, that You would speak into our hearts truth today. Father, the one single most important truth that we need to hear, that we need to embrace and accept and understand that we might walk with You. May this truth be revealed in a fresh way this morning. By Your Spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 103 is not a treasure. It's not a treasure. The book of Psalms, I would call a book of treasures. A treasury in and of itself. In fact, I made a recommendation last hour. I'll make it to you as well. If you want something to help your study through the Psalms to increase your understanding of it, and it's a powerful book. Actually, it's three books, a three-volume set. I would encourage you to pick up Spurgeon's Treasury of David. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, back in the 1800s, wrote The Treasury of David, and it's his commentary and his work through the Psalms. Not just his, but he draws in the work of many of his contemporaries in the day, conservative scholars who literally take God at His word, and The Treasury of David. It is amazing. Many of the insights that we've shared and talked about here were illuminated by, I believe, the Holy Spirit speaking through Charles Spurgeon. So I'd encourage you to pick up that book. But the title is interesting, A Treasury of David. And it covers all of the Psalms. Well, David only wrote about half, 80, 85, somewhere in there. 
number of psalms that he wrote. There's some that we think he probably wrote, but we don't know because there's no name ascribed to them. But it's often, even in the New Testament, said that the psalms are... It's like David's the editor. When they talk about the the psalms of David, they're speaking of the whole book of psalms, but he's the editor-in-chief. He's the one who, who oversees the process, who lends heart to the process. But I was thinking about that, that this is a treasury. Psalm 1 to 150. Like a treasure chest that you might find. And yet Psalm 103 is not a treasure. What do you mean? Let's say you find a treasure chest and you tip it over. You bust open the lock and and tip it over and the gold coins just pour out of it. And you realize this is a major find. I can pay off the house now. I can take care of my debts. This is wonderful. Christmas is here and I've got some extra gold coins in my pocket. But as you pour it out and all these treasures fall out, an old scroll rolls out as well. And you pick up the scroll and, and unroll it. And as you look, you realize that the scroll is a map to the place where the treasure came from, to the gold mine from which the gold in the box was mined. And that, that is not just a treasure in the chest. It is the map, the chart to take you to the place where the real treasure is found. Now, which would you rather have, a few gold coins in your pocket or the map to the place where the gold for all eternity resides? That's Psalm 103. It's not a treasure in itself. It is a map to the greater treasure. And it fits well in book four of the Psalms. We're in book four right now. Five books in the Psalms. You Bible students remember this. And each of those five books have this interesting way of paralleling the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so book four, which is where we're at right now, parallels the book of Numbers. And it fits because the book of Numbers is about the wilderness wandering of Israel. And in this book of the wanderer, David now charts the way of grace. He charts the way of grace. We're going to talk about grace this morning. There are a lot of Christians who do not understand grace. A lot of people in the world, especially, who have no idea what grace is really all about. Why is it such a focus? What's the deal with God's grace? I hope we can get a little closer to it this morning because David does a marvelous job laying out a map to and through grace to our ultimate and eternal destination. Now I should probably warn you, it is impossible to go through Psalm 103 in an hour of teaching. In fact, I'll give you some homework this week. I encourage you to go home and through every day this week, read through Psalm 103. Read it every day. Meditate on it. Think about what it says. Each day as you read through it, what stands out? What jumps out to you? What impresses you the most? This is not a psalm for a single teaching on a single Sunday morning. It is a psalm for a lifetime. This, to me, is the apex of the psalms. This is the one. If I had any psalm to pick of the 150, this would be the one because it charts the way of grace. And I believe the Lord would have us hear that. So this morning, we'll do our best to take a cursory glance to carefully roll back the scroll and see what we can understand but I encourage you to feast on this far longer than today. David wrote it, Psalm 103, a psalm of David. You see that in the heading, in the Hebrew there. And he most likely wrote it at the end of his lifetime, and this is very significant. Because by the end of David's life, he's an old man, full of years, full of wisdom. And I know I've talked about this a lot lately, but you know, it takes many years to finally get to the point where as you look back, you can recognize and see what God has truly accomplished in your life. You know, as a young person, myself, I I mostly looked ahead. 
And that's what we tend to do. You're in your teens, your 20s, you're, you're looking ahead, you're looking to that, that vision, the, the goal, the life, all the, the things that you plan and, and things that you believe you'll be able to accomplish. And then you get about midway through the, the path, the journey, where I'm at right now, you start to go, wow, I didn't do half the things I thought I was going to do. And there's so much I'd like to do, but I don't even have the energy to do that. I'm barely doing what I have to do right now. But there's a place, I believe, where you look back and you start to realize how little you ever accomplished, but how much the Lord has done. And that's where David is. David's at that place looking back. This is a man who has known sickness even unto death. David almost dying of an illness and being healed. He's known that. This is a man who's known sin of a horrendous type that destroyed his family. This is a man who's known despair. He's known disaster. He's known attack. He's known threats on his life for all of his life. And now, as an old man, he looks back. And the one thing that he hones in on more than anything else, the one thing that he sees as having got him through, is the loving kindness of God. The grace of God. And he understands it better in his old age than he ever did as a young man. Let's look at this. This treasure map of pure blessing as David charts the way of grace. Verse 1. He begins, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. And I find this interesting because David begins the psalm by talking to himself. He's not telling someone else to bless the Lord. He's telling himself, Bless the Lord, O my soul. He's commanding. This, this word bless is in the Hebrew the active imperative form. That means it's a command. Bless the Lord. He's commanding his own soul to offer blessing to the Lord. And that's what we must do to enter into a mentality of worship. I don't know about you, but there are times where you don't feel like, I don't feel like worshiping. My emotion's not there. My heart's not there. My flesh is not there. And David would say, then bless the Lord, O my soul. Speak to your head. Challenge yourself. Command yourself. It is time to worship and I am going to do so. This is what we need to do sometimes. Speaking to the soul. Psalm 57 verse 8 says, Awake my glory. Awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. It's speaking to yourself. I will praise the Lord. Sometimes that's what you need to do as you're getting out of the car on a Sunday morning. I will praise the Lord today. I will bless you. Soul, wake up, get ready to praise God. We have an iHome iPod clock. It's right by my bed at home. And so I pop my little iPod on there and I can wake up to anything. I just set a playlist and it'll play whatever I want. Right now what I have it set on is a song by Keith and, and Kristen Getty. Keith Getty who wrote In Christ Alone along with a man named Stuart Townend. Well, they wrote, a, they have a whole album out. It's just marvelous. It's a great album. Very, very, um, it kind of has a Scottish flavor to it, which speaks to me. And uh, this, this iPod clock, so I put this thing on there, and they have a song that's about 50 seconds long, if that. And it's just quiet music starts to swell, kind of orchestral sounding. And then Kristen Getty begins to speak Psalm 58, or 57, and verse 8 and following. And it's great. Awake, my glory, she says. <laughs> awake, harp and lyre. <laughs> I would awake in the dawn. I just love her voice. <laughs> I love waking up to it. I tell Cheryl, could you wake me up like this? Break, it's time to get awake. Come have your breakfast, you know. Lucky charms. <laughs> But it's a command to the soul. And we begin the psalm where David begins with a blessed mentality. 
And this is critical to understand, gang. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Well, the mind and the soul tend to be the same realm. It's that place of reason. And Jesus doubles up on that. Yeah, love the Lord with your heart and with your soul and your mind. Why does he target the soul and the mind? Why does Jesus focus on this? Why does David target the soul? Bless the Lord, O my soul. Because the mind and the soul is at the center of the will. It's the place where decisions are made, either to be spiritual or to be physical. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Tell the mind, tell the soul, tell the seat of reason, it is time to bless the Lord. Paul says it this way in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. And college students especially, Paul hones in on this. He really attacks it. Notice what he says can take you captive. Paul says philosophy can take you captive. Remember Steve Martin once saying, I took enough philosophy in college to mess me up for the rest of my life. (laughs) Empty deception. Things that have no substance. They seem flashy, they seem impressive, but they're empty. The traditions of men. And I would lay alongside that church tradition. Don't do things just because that's always the way it's been done. There's got to be a reason, a godly reason. He says the principles of the world, these things can capture the soul. They grab the attention of the mind, which is why Bible study is so critically important. Because it's as we study the Word, it's as we're in the book, that the mind gets captured. That the mind gets stirred up. And that the mind decides, I want to be spiritual. I want to be focused on spiritual things, not on fleshly things. And the Lord uses His Word powerfully to grab hold of the mind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And this is where David begins in this marvelous psalm. He says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Man, woman, command your soul. Now, verse 2, he continues, Bless the Lord, O my soul, as if it weren't enough the first time. He tells us again, and he says, And forget none of his benefits. I have to command my soul, because I have such a tendency to forget. Forgetfulness. Gang, forgetfulness causes faith to falter. Forgetfulness causes faith to to falter. When am I most likely to whine and complain? It's when I forget what God has been up to. When am I most likely to fret and worry? It's when I forget the benefits, the blessings of the Lord. When I forget what He's done for me and I start to worry about, you know, I can go a month of just blessing, 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 nothing but good things for the, from the Lord, have one bad hour in a morning and forget the whole thing. You, you like that? You ever been there? <laughs> He's been so good, and yet I said, I can't believe my life like this. It's so terrible. And, and the Lord's going, huh? Can we look at what? Don't forget His benefits. Psalm 37, verse 1. You remember this? Do not fret. Psalm 42, verse 11. Hope in God. Psalm 46, verse 10. Cease striving and know that I am God. We went through those three psalms one after another several months, or a couple of months back. 
And everybody kept coming up going, yes, that's the answer. And I'm going, that is so simple. Don't fret. Simple things, but the soul forgets. And as we forget His benefits and His blessings, we start to freak out. But remember His benefits. Forget not His blessings and my body starts to relax. My spirit is at peace. And my mind becomes captivated with all the goodness of God. That's a blessed mentality. And so David says, forget none of His benefits. And then he goes on to list five in verse 3. Who pardons all your iniquities. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Who satisfies your years with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. A blessed vitality, number two. Number one is a blessed mentality if you're taking notes. Number two is a blessed vitality. Now remember who's writing it. This is old David. This elder statesman who recognizes the benefits of blessing. Who's remembering now, looking back, thinking through. And David knows God's blessings are the source of our ability to bless His name. You don't bless the Lord's name unless you recognize the blessing that comes from Him first. He loves first. Remember the old Sunday school song, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Why? Because He first loved me. Not because I generated it. Not because I somehow came up with the ability to bless God. Oh, hey, bless the Lord. No, He blesses first. And everything that we do where God is concerned, we do in response to what He's already done. All these benefits. And David says, don't forget them. It brings about a blessed vitality. Pardon, healing, redemption, crowning, and satisfaction. And these are things recognized by a man who has needed all of them. David needed pardon. One word, Bathsheba. David needed pardon. David needed healing as being close to death. David needed redemption. David was crowned. Remember, by the Lord, God chose David. God had David anointed. God crowned David king of Israel. And David here at the end of his life is looking back and there is a sense of satisfaction. Not at what he's done, but at how God has worked through his whole entire life. In another psalm, David wrote, Psalm 68, verse 19, Blessed be the Lord who daily loathes us with benefits. The Hebrew just says, Blessed be the Lord who loathes. That's all it says in the Hebrew. But the context is the blessings of the Lord. He's just dumping blessing upon blessing upon blessing on us. And it's really not that hard to find something to bless the Lord for. Any one of us can do it at any moment of our life. It's not hard to bless the Lord. You stop and think, what is one good thing God has done for you since you woke up this morning? Well, let's begin with the fact that you woke up. Bless the Lord. That you stood up out of bed. Bless the Lord. That you met one person who had a smile. And I don't care if the rest of us are grumps. Joe's back there smiling. Bless the Lord. (laughs) Bless the Lord. Now the grouch might say, Well, I've got a head cold, so he clearly doesn't heal all our diseases. Let me tell you something that I believe to be true about healing and the power of the Lord. And I think this is very important. The blessed vitality that is offered by the Lord that Dave is talking about here is far bigger than today's head cold. It's a lot bigger than even yesterday's cancer, gang. 
In fact, it is small-minded faith that looks at temporary physical healing as fulfillment of God's promise to heal. I'm not saying we shouldn't pray for healing. And I'm not saying that God doesn't even have enough concern and care and love for us to heal a cold. Whatever. But what I'm saying is when we limit the picture of healing to our temporary physical lives, we are missing the substance of the healing. Of what Jesus went through, of what He did. Jesus' blood, gang, is far more applied than just to the physical body. Isaiah 53 verse 5 tells us He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging, we are healed. you remember what a scourge is? Leather straps tied together with chunks of bone and iron and glass in them. And the scourge would be whipped across a person's back and then drugged to create hamburger out of a person's back. By His scourging, we are healed. You think that Jesus went through that so that I wouldn't get a cold? I mean, do you think the cross is so I don't get a cough? Or even pushed a little bit further, do you think His death on the cross, that the the entire healing that comes from that scourging and that horrific death was so that I wouldn't get cancer and die? It's far bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. Now, His healing does heal from cancer. The scourging does bring about physical healing in miraculous and supernatural ways, and we have seen it here at the bridge time and time again. But we don't limit it to that, because the reality is the healing of Jesus Christ is not just a temporary healing, it is an eternal healing. It is a forever healing. Peter put it this way, 1 Peter 2.24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross, so that... We might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. That's a forever thing. That's an eternal reality. This blessed vitality is a vitality gang everlasting. And David in his old age, you realize when David was old, he couldn't even keep warm. His body got to the point where he was shivering all the time. Because his physical body was just giving out, and yet he is able to talk about this vitality, this this wonderful healing that the Lord brings. Why? Because David knew that his spirit was not going to be left in Sheol, but was going to be raised up. A blessed mentality, blessing the Lord. A blessed vitality. And number three, number three, watch this, a blessed reality. Verse six. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. Now David taps into something here that's easy to miss, but is, wow, you know what? It's at the center of everything that we believe as followers of Jesus. God made Moses... Note this in verse 7, to know His ways. The sons of Israel only knew His acts. And there's a difference. Moses knew His ways. Israel knew His acts. Moses continued to follow the Lord with with the exception of one slip up. (laughs) The people of Israel rebelled constantly. Why? Because Moses knew His ways. And Israel only saw His actions. Have you ever... 
Have you ever heard God described as harsh or distant or uncaring or a killjoy? How many people have heard descriptions like that given to God? Okay. I would think the majority of us have at some point heard God described as hard-hearted, as some distant judge just waiting to pounce. That's not what the Scriptures tell us. If you, listen, if you only see His actions without the context of His character, you will misunderstand God. Prime example, the flood. You look at the flood. Wow! (laughs) He wiped out the world. He killed everybody but eight people. What a judgmental, harsh, killing God. That's awful what He did. Outside of the context of God's character, you could say, harsh, judgmental God. Do you realize that if God had not flooded the world, we were at the point in Genesis chapter 6-9 through where there were eight people left who even believed. Eight of the whole world. Just wait a generation and how many would be left? Three? Maybe down to one? And the one dies and there's no one there to believe in God and guess what happens? There is no way that God can now redeem all the people who died in the years, in the decades in the centuries before the flood. But God being, what does He say? Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, gave it all the way until there were only eight people left. And then for the sake of saving all humanity, He had to flood the world. Now you understand that if you understand God's character. But if you don't understand His character, you just see Him as as harsh, as judgmental. Here's the blessed reality. Moses knew the nature of God. Now, why why does David mention Moses here? Because verse 8 is a direct quote of something Moses heard with his own ears. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Remember the story? Moses said, said, Lord, I want to see your glory. God said, Moses, you can't handle my glory. You see my glory, you will die. So I'll let you see my goodness as I pass by. Exodus 34, verse 6. The Lord passed by in front of Moses and proclaimed God's self-definition here. The Lord... The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. David now quotes, he pulls this right out of Scripture and lays it in this psalm to say, this is the reality of the character of God. Listen to this true reality. Focus in on this. The Lord is compassionate. The word compassionate in the Hebrew is rachum, and it means He loves deeply. That He loves deeply. Tenderly, with a great affection. The second word is gracious. And it's not gracious like we think of the word grace. It's the word hanun in Hebrew. And it speaks of sympathy. The Lord's sympathetic, even, even one who shows pity. In fact, hanun refers to an action from a superior to an inferior who has no real claim for gracious treatment. It's sympathy all. Poor little puppies. Poor little doggies. That's, that's Hanun. Reggie's running through the house. He trips and falls and, and yelps. Oh, poor little guy. Hanun. I've just shown sympathy for my dog. And that's the description of this. Sympathy from the greater being to the lesser being. And gang, he has to stoop down low just to be sympathetic to you and to me. And yet... He goes a step further. Not only is God sympathetic, but He is empathetic in that He put on human flesh. That's Jesus Christ. Moving beyond sympathy into empathy, emptying Himself. And why did He do that? 
Why did God put on flesh? Why stoop down at all? Because it is who He is. It's His character. You could almost say God couldn't not put on human flesh. He had to put on human flesh. Why? Because it's His nature to go as far as anybody can go to show grace and compassion. Oh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. I like this one. In the Hebrew, it's arekas. And it means, literally, a long, drawn-out breath. And it's the breath I probably should have used with Hayden last night. Think about when you're so angry, your blood boils and your nostrils flare and you go... That's where I was last night. You see, it was 10 o'clock and it was... Thanksgiving weekend and the kids were home and the decorating was up and we were watching movies and just having a great family time and, and as Hayden's scuttling out of the kitchen he goes oh by the way dad um, I, I have a creative writing assignment that's actually supposed to be emailed by midnight tonight and I, I didn't get that done I'm going to go down and watch a movie whoa what you're going to what I'm going to go down and watch a movie no no it's 10 o'clock it's time for creative writing son and I was so angry. I was just, it just, you know, what I needed was a long, drawn-out breath. That would have helped my son in this particular moment. <sighs> Go do your creative writing. Instead, it was you will sit down right now and do the creative writing. I can't even believe it. I would sit down and watch a movie with your mom, and you're messing up my evening. And... Slow to anger. Slow to anger. Now, I know none of you are ever like that. I know none of you ever just lose your cool or blow your top. I think we all need a little more erect off, long, drawn-out breath, and this indicates a patient God with an unholy people. God is so patient with us. He is so good. And He's abounding in loving kindness. And here's where we come to it, gang. Rob Chesed. Hesed in the Hebrew is exceeding. It's that abundant grace. Now we're not just talking about what God does. Israel saw the actions. We're talking about who God is. And He is a God of overwhelming grace. You know what the difference is between grace and mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. That's mercy. Grace is getting what I don't deserve. Mercy is God saying, I'm not going to squash you like a bug. Thank you. Grace is, and I'm going to crown you with loving kindness and compassion. Mercy is God even allowing us to breathe and live at all. Grace is God saying, I've prepared a place for you that where I am, there you may also be. Grace indicates reward and gifts that we just we have never earned. While mercy is, I'm not being punished, and that's a good thing. It was the day before Christmas break, and my mother's sixth grade class at Linda Vista Elementary School in Southern California was completely whacked out. Sixth graders, the day before they're out for break, they're going nuts. They're out of control, they're not obeying, they're not listening. And finally my mom had had it, and she stood up and shouted, Heads down! And every head on the desk, This is it, we're dead. We pushed her too far. And in the silence there, My mom, the teacher, said, thumbs up. Those of you who know the game, heads down, thumbs up, 
seven up. And they played for half an hour. They did not deserve that. She showed mercy in that she did not kill the entire class. She showed grace in that they got to play. Mercy and grace, and God offers us both. Let me tell you something. The next time someone comes up to you and paints a picture of God as harsh or uncaring, you take them right here. You say, let me tell you what God's definition is of Himself. Listen to what He says. He's compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And that's why, by the way, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, because you've got to go through the character of God to get to God. You have to have the grace that is by nature who God is to get to where God is. In the grace of Jesus Christ. Oh, this is marvelous. Verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Bible students, what does sin deserve? Death. That's what our sin deserves. A single lie. You are deserving of death. That's the way it is. That's the truth. Romans 5.12 Just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Don't blame Adam. Blame yourself. Blame me. We all sinned and therefore death is waiting there for us. And Psalm 130 verse 3 tells us, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Mother Teresa, could she stand? Well, Billy Graham, he could stand. Pastor Rick? (laughs) Who could stand if God is going to lay out sin before us? One blight on your record. You're done. But He doesn't. In fact, Psalm 130 verse 4 says, There is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. We don't get from God what we deserve. David knows that full well. He's looking back over his life. There's this comparison going on between God's grace and David's foolishness. And he sees what he should get and he doesn't get it. And he sees what God's offering and it's blowing his mind that he's had such forgiveness from the Lord. Which brings us to what I believe is the most breathtaking of all verses, or truths at least in Scripture. Number four, a blessed directionality. A blessed directionality. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has He removed our transgressions from us. As high as the heavens are above the earth. You know how high that is? You, how high can you go to outrocket grace? At what point have you gone too far that that there's no more grace? Have you actually been able to reach the ends of the universe? You know, the universe is expanding, gang. And what we keep discovering in science is every time we think we've reached about the end of where the universe is, we discover, no, it's much further than we thought. And even if you could get to that place, because the universe is expanding, you can never find the end of it. You just keep going. That's grace. That's how David describes the loving kindness of God. It just continues on and on and on. He says from east to west. He doesn't say from north to south. Well, why not? Why not make it a bigger picture? North, south, east, west. Because there is a southernmost point where you stop going south. And you start to go north again. You know there's not an easternmost point. 
There's truly not. You just head east and you keep going east. Where are you going? I'm going east. Okay. Well, where, are you, where are you going now? Still going east. How about now? East. Which way are you headed? Still heading to the east. What? Well, I'm going, I'm going east now. Are you going to go back to the west? No, because I'm heading east. That's it. You keep going east, east, east. You never stop going east. You never fall off the map of God's grace. That is the chart of grace. That's how David is describing the hugeness, the vastness of this. It's absolutely astounding. It goes further than you can possibly even imagine. And some of you in here need to be reminded of this. How do you know that, Rick? Because of the conversations that I have with people. That less has with people. I'm all the time having to say, yeah, but God forgave that. But God's grace is bigger than your foolishness. It's bigger than your sin. But God's grace goes on forever. It's an eternal thing. You know what it has to be? If God's grace was not eternal, there would come a certain point in eternity with God where suddenly His grace would run out and we'd be done. We'd be finished. But God's grace never ends as the east is from the west. No sin is so great that God can't take you beyond it into the realm of His grace. And that's not Disneyland. It's not some candy-coated fantasy land. It's too expensive anyway. It's not a place where you go and then by the end of the day it's over and you're tired and your feet are hurting and your knees are sore and you just got to get out of there. It's grace upon grace upon grace and it never ends. Verse 13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion. And I wish David had stopped right there. On those who fear him. Yeah. As a younger man, I would read through this, this psalm and come to verse 12 and then on into 13 and I just, I just wish he had stopped. So great is his compassion on those who fear him. Why do you have to bring up the fear factor, David? We're talking about grace and it's wonderful and it's soothing and it's encouraging and now I've got to fear God. How does this work? Let me repeat for you Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, listen, that you may be feared. God forgives that we might learn to fear Him. What do you mean by that? How does that work? Listen, gang, the fear of the Lord here in verse 13 is in the context of a father. Context of a father. Let me read it again. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I used to fear my dad. Most of us at some point in our life feared a father. I feared my dad. Especially, you know, he used to come down the hallway and I could hear the belt coming out of the loops. And I knew I was toast. And he'd do that little snap thing. Have you ever had a dad do this? Bends the belt in half and goes, snap! I mean, that hurt worse than the spanking did because you knew what was coming. And it was terrifying. And I feared my dad. I don't fear my dad anymore. Partially because I can run faster than he can. But the real reason that I don't fear my dad is I got to a point in my life where I realized he's fallible. He makes mistakes. He's not perfect. He doesn't always get it right. Some of you learned that a lot earlier than I did. Others of you still have to learn that. Hannah still fears me and has no idea that I'm not a perfect person. Even now as I say that, she shakes her head, no, no, my dad is perfect. 
Fear and perfection. Gang, listen. I believe as most kids did for a time that dad was omniscient. But the older I got, the less I feared him. I still respect him, but I feared him less. With God, it's the exact opposite. The more I know him, the greater I fear him. But it's not a horrible kind of thing. It's an overwhelming awe at who he is. And it's a reality that God alone can chart the way home. God alone can get... Have you ever gotten lost when you were a kid? Get lost in a department store? And you're looking around? How am I ever going to get home now? Because the department store is big and there are those escalators. And yeah, they're fun when mom or dad are on either side. But when you're by yourself, how am I going to get home? And it's terrifying. And you just... You need dad to get you home. And God is the father who, who will get you home. And he's the only one who can get you home. The people of Israel cried out in Isaiah 63, verse 14. They said, Look down from heaven and see from your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me. For you are our Father. Though Abraham does not know us, and Israel does not recognize us, you, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from of old is your name. Israel cries out, Lord, we're lost. And not even our father Abraham can save us. And not our father Jacob. And by the way, none of our fathers can save us. None of our fathers who oftentimes disappoint as we find out how fallible and frail they truly are. They can't save you. You can't put your faith there, your trust there. Yeah, respect them. Children, obey your parents as in in the Lord, but they can't get you home. Israel's recognizing that we're lost, Father. And they come to this single conclusion. You are our Father. And that's what it takes when we see Him as the Father who is perfect and everlasting and full of grace and compassion. He can get me home. And He's the only one. It's an amazing and it's a fearful truth that He knows the way and I am in awe of Him for it. For He Himself knows our frame, and He is mindful that we are but dust. You know, something we don't have time to do this morning, you can go verse by verse through Psalm 103, and you can see Jesus all along the way. Because this psalm reveals Jesus Christ. Well, didn't we just read about Father? Yeah, and Isaiah 9 verse 6 tells us He's the everlasting Father. Jesus is. Throughout, it's portraits of Jesus. And in verse 14, He Himself knows our frame. It's not just that He's aware of our frailty. He knows our frame because He put it on. He put on flesh. He walked as a human being. He knows, again, not sympathy, but empathy because He wore it. He understands. He says, as for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. I remember flourishing. I remember that. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. What's David saying? He's saying life blows you away. It does. Blows you away. And it blows everybody away. You are not the only one. And if you've never been blown away by life, give it time. It's coming. The wind is coming. 
and the dust gets scattered. We nearly died three times on Monday of this past week. Driving down to SeaTac Airport. I came out in the morning. It was lovely morning, very cold, and so I came out to start up the Suburban and get it warmed up. I know it was not environmentally sound, but I really didn't care. I was cold. So I started up the car, left it running five or ten minutes, added to my own little carbon footprint, and went inside. And as I was walking in the house, I saw one little flurry of snow. And I thought, hey, hey, that's kind of cool. And I walked in, hey, I just saw a flurry. Yeah, yeah, it looks like there's some coming down now. And there's a few more coming down. By the time we got out to the car, 15 minutes later, okay, it was 15 minutes that the car was running. All right, so sue me. Running out there, and it's just snowing. And you all were here, you know, Monday. Not a good day for the road between here and SeaTac. I think we counted 35 accidents going down there. And they weren't, they weren't like the bad, horrible, bloody accidents. They were the slow motion accident. Oh. <laughs> They're the, I'm a moron. I have no business driving a car. You know, all the way down, along, I mean, just the carnage on the way down and on the way back. And we, you know, we're in the suburban four-wheel drive, but you get to, and let me, let me illuminate something for you. This is free. You don't have to pay for this this morning. If you're driving on snow and you start to slide, it's because your tires have warmed up and all you need to do is roll forward just a little bit to the cooler part of the tire. Because the warm tire melts the snow just enough that it gets slippery. So roll the car forward a few inches, and usually it'll catch. So we're in there trying to do that and roll forward. And, you know, I've got a truck right here, and we're sliding toward the truck. So I rolled, and we go over this. It was just, it was a nightmare. Nine hours from when we left home to when we got back home. Nine hours in that car. What was I talking about? Oh, life blows you away. And it cracks me up, Washingtonians, all it takes is what, the first heart freeze of the year, and it's mass carnage on the roads. When are we going to learn? If the snow is coming down, slow down. If the snow is coming down, don't drive. Most of us shouldn't be in cars anyway. I learned two specific things on the road Monday. That number one, the weatherman is an idiot. And number two, I am like the dusty snow drifting across the road. I'm dust. I am frail. Those cars that we think protect us are like aluminum cans. I mean, they just crumple. But here's the good news. Father knows. God knows that we're dust. He knows our frame. He knows our frailties, our vulnerabilities. He knows what each one of us are made of. And He loves us still. Verse 17. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. And His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. And this gang is a blessed physicality. A blessed physicality. This is how you get blessed in the flesh. You want a life of physical blessing from the Lord. Here's how you do it. Fear the Lord and keep His word. It really is that simple. Fear the Lord, keep His word, remember His commandments. Not legalistically. If you've been to the bridge any amount of time, you know we are not into legalism, we are into grace. Grace is what saves us. We do not do what we do as followers of Jesus to win our way to heaven. But we are saved by grace. And yet, here are the commands of God. And David looks back over his life and says, Wow, when I did what the Lord said to do, life was pretty good. 
when I did what I wanted to do, life was pretty bad. It's a very basic thing to understand. Psalm 119, David wrote, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. Keep His commandments. And it's just, it's absolutely breathtaking how, oh, how stupid we can be. When it comes to the commands of God, we read them and we say, okay, I know what the Bible teaches about that, but I'm going to try it this way. What? I know that God's eternal and all that and that His Word is perfect and He's told me some things that I probably should avoid, but I'd really like to try and just see if maybe God's wrong. Huh? I mean, does that just sound ridiculous? And yet that's what we do in our rebellious lives. We say, yeah, yeah, the Bible says this, but I'm going to do this. Because really, I'm, I'm the first person in all history who's going to prove that God's wrong in this one area. Okay, go right ahead. Or, or you can keep His commandments and find a better life. Because He knows what works. And He's given us what works. question is, are we going to buy it or not? Psalm 25 verse 10 says, All the paths of the Lord are loving kindness and truth to those who keep His covenant and His testimonies. And so David can say, When I walked the Lord's way, I was blessed in the flesh. When I walked my own way, my flesh made a mess. Okay, we come down to it. Listen, Psalm 103 again is a treasure map. A treasure map. And in the midst of all this treasure, it leads to a gold mine. Number six in your notes, a blessed eventuality. Verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Bless the Lord, all you His hosts, you who serve Him, doing His will. Bless the Lord, all you works of His, in all places of His dominion. And what's David doing here? Listen, he began the psalm as a solo. Bless the Lord, O my soul. He ends the psalm as a symphony. Calling upon all created nature, all created beings, to bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, you His angels. Angelic beings who were created to worship. Oh, and by the way, just note this. Bless the Lord, you His angels, mighty in strength, who perform His word, obeying the voice of His word. Who's that? Oh, that's Jesus. The Word made flesh. See, the Word is John's way of describing Jesus before He became flesh. And the angels obey the voice of the Word of God, Jesus Christ. You His angels, bless the Lord, all you His hosts. Who's that? The full gathering of the elders and the saints before the throne in heaven. Bless the Lord. And he says, bless the Lord, you His works. And that's everything else. In all existence, everything mixed in. But note what's happening here. David takes us. He charts out grace. God's grace. His loving kindness. He charts it out for us and takes us all the way to the final, ultimate reality, the eventuality of what is coming. And it's not the millennial kingdom that we've talked about. That thousand year reign of Christ that is just around the corner. This is after. Beyond that. Revelation 21 and 22 that tells us after that thousand year reign, Jesus just continues reigning right on into eternity. God gives us a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, and what happens? The angels bless His name. 
The hosts of heaven bless His name. All the works of God bless His name. Gang, this is a portrait of the final reality. The treasure map charts grace all the way to eternity. Where we will be with God forever. It's a marvelous song. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. How do we bless the Lord? How do you bless the Lord? I mean, come on. He's the Lord. What do you give the God who has everything? I'm not sure that the daily deal from eBay is going to do it. You know? Cyber Monday. You get free shipping, but still, I don't know that that's going to bless the Lord. How do you bless the Lord? It's simple, gang. Follow His Word home. Follow His Word home. Obey Him. It blesses Him. Jesus described it in the marvelous parable of the prodigal son. Remember the story? And the son finally comes to his senses and he's headed home. Where's the dad? He's standing there waiting. He sees his son coming and the father is immediately blessed because why? The son's coming home. And it doesn't matter what he's done or where he's been or who he's been with. He's just thrilled. My son's coming home. He runs to him. He throws his arms around him. He says, bring the best robe and a ring and sandals for his feet. My son who was dead is alive. Come on, son. And and the son can't even get a word out. And the father is blessed because the son is coming home. You want to bless the Lord? Go home. Follow him home. Follow the chart. The map will get us there through God by his grace in Jesus Christ. You know what Jesus says? Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus would say, man, you take that box, that treasure chest, and you kick it out of the way and you grab hold of the map and come home. You head for home. And not only will you be blessed, but you will bless the Lord. And Father, we bless you this morning and we thank you for this psalm. Marvelous in its content, in its message. And we need to hear this again. It is by grace we have been saved. Through faith. And this not of ourselves. It is the gift of God. So that no man can boast. Lord, bless Your name. May we be a people who bring blessing and joy to Your name. Teach us to walk toward You. To journey home. Not to care about the treasures of this world. But to have one thought in mind and that is to be with You. Father, there may be some here this morning who haven't ever believed in Jesus, ever given their lives to Him. Holy Spirit, would You convict, even now as we worship You, would You convict and draw those to You who need to be saved. So we lift You up now in Jesus' name. Amen.